Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. We are continuing a new fall sermon series this morning, Christ and Culture Following Jesus in a Fallen World. As we heard last week in the first message, followers of Jesus are called to be in the world, but not of it. We're to be holy. Therefore, we must be wise, discerning children of the light. And while there are many elements of culture that can be affirmed, we cannot uncritically accept all aspects of culture without first examining them in the light of Christ and the gospel. And so this fall series is about applying the gospel to every area of life and using cultural discernment as we navigate the world as kingdom people. Here's how we defined culture last Sunday if you missed it or just need a refresher. Culture is what humans, human beings make of the world in both senses, the things that we make and the meaning that we make. So the things that we make like art, music, literature, clothing, food, laws, gardens, architecture, technology, so forth and so on. And of course, the meaning that we make, these are interlinked. We communicate meaning by what we make because what we make says something about who we are, our identity, our purpose, why we're here, what or who we worship, and we all worship someone or something, what we value, what is true, what is good, what is right and wrong, so forth and so on. The things that we make communicate meaning. That is what we said culture is. And as I said last week, since we live in a fallen world, we will inevitably encounter aspects of culture which reflects, of course, the dominant views of a particular people and place. So we'll, we'll encounter aspects of that culture that is not reflective of God's glory and his goodwill for creation. So what then? What happens when we encounter that? And in general, what should our posture toward culture B, which is always a mixed bag, isn't it? Well, remember, here are some unhealthy postures. Again, to refresh your memory, the unhealthy postures are these four C's here. To condemn culture, that is, withdraw or war actively against it. And we can see examples of this, lots of examples of this today. Many of you grew up in a faith tradition that operated like this toward culture. They also have the posture of critiquing culture, which is only really interested in discussing and debating ideas and wanting to sort of argue people into the kingdom. Uh, the copying culture, where we offer cheap imitations and alternatives as Christians. And I just gave one example of the music industry. We do this sort of thing a lot. And then, of course, consuming culture, where we just mostly are, are, are conforming to the world without any discernment whatsoever. And we just vacillate between extremes today. I see this so much. 
I see it in the realm of politics, of course. We see this in the realm of theology. And particularly for people who are Christians or disciples, we've grown up in the church. We've experienced maybe one extreme. And so the temptation is to gravitate toward another extreme. Be aware of this. Be mindful of this. Because Jesus Christ cannot be found in the extremes. Certainly not in the extremes of culture and the way we define it. If anything's extreme or radical, let's let Jesus define that for us. And so we should be able to see how these postures here are unhelpful and inconsistent with Christ. Rather, if we we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus and the history of the early church, which we'll do some in this series, we discover that there is a kingdom approach that more accurately reflects the love of God for the world and his appreciation for cultural differences. It also maintains this distinction that the Lord, the Lord makes, which we looked at last Sunday, between the church and the world. So instead of condemning, critiquing, copying, or consuming culture, disciples create culture and follow Jesus by these three things. Number one, we enter the culture. That is, we affirm what we can. As we'll see later in this series, we become fluent in the culture. We're able to speak the culture's language. And that doesn't mean just consume everything the culture dishes out. But if you're still using analogies from the 40s and the 50s, or like, like me, I'm tempted to just make references to 80s and 90s movies <laughs> and quote that, then you're probably not going to connect well with the culture. And that's just one example of that. So we've got to continue to move along with the world, not get stuck in the past so that we can become fluent in the culture and affirm what is good about it, as we'll see, begin there rather than coming out and doing number two, which is important, but not where we begin. Number two, challenging the culture. Right? We confront the culture's idols and its darkness, which we'll talk specifically about next Sunday when we're in the book of Daniel, confronting the idols of culture. And then number three, appealing to its listeners. Entering the culture, affirming what we can, challenging the culture, confronting the idols and the darkness of culture, and then appealing to its listeners, offering a news story, i.e. the gospel, and cast that sort of vision of the way God wants the world to be, the way things can be. And it takes in a gospel imagination to be able to perceive of it, to dream about it, to, to imagine what would it look like if the kingdom of God came in its fullness and will one day come in its fullness on the earth. This is what we're called to do. This is a kingdom approach. So we're going to keep coming back to this throughout this sermon series. But for the message this morning, we're going to continue to lay a biblical foundation for what culture is, where it comes from, and how God has created us to be culture makers. And so we're going to lean into number one there, entering the culture just a bit, entering the culture, rejecting the four C's and a hostile posture toward culture so we can move into the neighborhood. John 1.14, from the message we looked at that last Sunday, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, and this should be our posture as well. So if you're taking notes, the title of the message this morning is For the Good of the City. Look at your bulletin. You can see the sermon focus. We are created to be God's image bearers and culture makers. Now, maybe you, you never thought about that. We're going to look at Genesis 1 here in just a minute. But I want you to think about that. To be made in God's image, it means a lot. 
But one of the things it means is that we are to be creators ourselves. And specifically, creators of culture to manage, to steward, to be caretakers of the world, but also creators in our own right. You've heard that joke, though, right, where human beings are trying to create stuff and they're sort of in a, a, a competition with God. Well, I can, we can do what you do, God. And, and he says, okay, let's see it. And man reaches down and grabs the dirt. And he says, ah, get your own dirt, right? So, yeah, another pastor joke. Maybe you've heard that one before. But we are in our own right and way called to create with the stuff that God has given us and to bring meaning that's consistent with his design and will into the world. So we can see from the very beginning that God wants us to make things, to make meaning that reflects his glory in the world and leads to human flourishing. Therefore, he wants us to partner with him in bringing more of the kingdom to the earth through our work and influence right where we are live, right? In the second message here, we're going to look at how disciples of Jesus are called to seek the good of the city as citizens of heaven. Who comes here this morning with this feeling of, man, life has just really kicked up recently? Is anybody sensing that? Like you're feeling a whole lot busier than what we've been in the last two years. Maybe you feel a little run down. Your mind is racing. You're thinking about all the things that you need to do this week. And I just want to challenge you. And by the way, I say that from experience. Uh, I want to challenge you to be present right now. Right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and give him all of those things. And God, help us to be present so that we can hear from you and experience you. Let's pray. Father, that's what we ask. We ask that you would help us to be present. We've got a lot of stuff going on. We've got a lot of, some of it, important things to do. But we give all those things to you now. But we lay them at your feet. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to be attentive to your voice, to your leading. God, we, we give an open invitation to you that you would speak to us, to challenge us, to confront our own idols, Lord, the towers that we build to the heavens. And we also ask, God, that you comfort us, remind us of the way things truly are despite what the world tells us. Lead us to the truth, God, and set us free. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're ready to go now, aren't we? Grab your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse 24 and read through verse 31. Because some of you are already starting to settle in. I can see the heavy eyes. Why don't you stand with me? Let's get the blood flowing again. (laughs) I pay attention to these things. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. Now we are dropping in on the sixth day of creation here in Genesis 1. Then God said... Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us 
make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. And then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Genesis chapters 1 through 11. If you're a student of the scriptures, you may know this. The Genesis 1 through 11 is, by a lot of scholars, considered to be prehistory, or even use the word myth. Now, don't get your feathers all, you know, flustered and puffed up by the usage of that word. It's, it's really referring to a genre of literature that seeks to explain why things are the way that they are. And in this case, with the Bible, who God is, what he desires for his creation. Uh, why we're here, who we are, why things are the way that they are, and in this case, broken and not as they should be, but as we'll see, not beyond redemption. So let's break that down, Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 2 is considered ancient cosmology. This is where we're shown that God has a particular order, a particular design for creation, its purpose, its Function, how things ought to function, is not intended to be a literal scientific account. Now, for most of us, I'm guessing that means whew, good, because that doesn't quite square with some of the science that we have. And I, I, I tend to agree with that. You may disagree with that. That's okay. But don't let Genesis be a lesson in missing the point of who God is, what God desires for the world, and our purpose, what our purpose is. The creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is described as a temple, a temple for the Lord and his presence to come down and to be with us, and we participate in the creation. It was a good place. Remember, seven times God says it was good, and it is a good place for humans to flourish. God creates humans in the image of God, that is to reflect God's love, his goodness, his creativity, and to make something of the stuff that he created, to reproduce, to manage, to steward, to create culture and cultivate his good world like artists and gardeners. Notice there we are given the task of naming things, right? Naming the plants, naming the animals, working a garden. Isn't that 
interesting that God doesn't give us something complete. He gives us something to till, something to cultivate, something to work and to participate in. And then Genesis 3, of course, some of you are familiar. This is where Adam and Eve are given a choice and they fall. That's where we get that term, the fall, and that we live in a fallen world. They're given a moral choice. Now look at it and think of it this way. How will humans go about building the world and using their creative culture-making power. God is the one with the knowledge of good and evil at this point, and so he then gives humans a choice to either trust God or to find good and evil for themselves. Now, this is the best of all possible worlds that God could create. Now, think about this. God did not create robots. He did not create automatons, right? He gave us a will. He gave us free will, we call that in the church. Now, you may be wondering, well, well, if the new heaven and earth is coming one day, are we not going to have free will then? And all I can say to you is that like Jesus's will was perfected only to do the good, but still had choice, so our will will be one day. I think this is what the scriptures teach us. So humans are given a choice to trust God or to find good and evil for themselves. And what do they do? They turn away from God. They do what they think is good for themselves. They sin. They experience the fall. And then the downward spiral of human culture begins in the next chapter, chapter 4. Adam and Eve are put out of the garden so as, and this is actually the mercy of God, so as not to live forever in their sinful state. What happens then? Their son Cain kills his brother Abel. And then Cain, we're told, goes and founds a city. So at that time, the city was thought to be a scary place full of sin, evil, and corruption. And then chapter 5, we're given a genealogy of a righteous line from a third son of the first couple, which leads us to Noah. In Genesis chapter 6 through 9, and of course I'm summarizing a whole lot of stuff here, folks, so just bear with me. But in Genesis 6 through 9, we have a retelling of an ancient flood story. Some believe is more ancient than the biblical narrative, but the biblical story is taking the story that people would have known through oral tradition and retelling it in a way is to tell us something about God, about God's designs, his purposes, but also about us and what we have done to the world. So it's a retelling of an ancient flood story that counters pagan ideas about God, about his character, and about his purposes. So while humans were created to partner with God as as order bringers, think about that, and makers of culture, we see them choose to pursue their own path for their own glory and their own benefit. So instead of order, they bring about violence. Instead of order, they bring about corruption and chaos. So the flood is not a story intended to be about crime and punishment. But in contrast to pagan flood stories, the Bible highlights God's desire to save those who will repent and return to him and his purposes for creation. It's not just about Noah's family. It's also about the animals as well, right? Which brings about the blessings for all on the earth when we align ourselves to God's good purposes and repent 
when we have gone astray. Chapter 10, we read how humanity grows again. It multiplies, but gravitating to one spot, one particular spot in the east, not filling the earth with God's glory the way he had commanded. And then in chapter 11, we read about a sinful city and the tower of Babel, which is what I really want to talk about to begin here this morning. Uh, what you're looking at there is a, an ancient Babylonian tablet. It's thought to be 6th century BC or BCE, a Babylonian tablet depicting what some experts to believe to be the Tower of Babel. That might be a, a, a different looking tower than what you were imagining. Archaeologists generally agree that the site of the tower is in the ancient city of Babylon, approximately 80 miles south of Baghdad. Back when Saddam Hussein was in power, he was trying to rebuild this place. The original city was built about 2300 BCE. It was sacked in 1595 BCE by the Hittites. And in 612 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt the city, turning it into his capital. He constructed a large ziggurat. That's what that, that is called. It's these pyramid-shaped temples. That's what we call a tower around the original ancient tower. It was thought to be 300 feet tall and made of oven-baked bricks, which was a new form of architecture at the time of its construction, oven-baked bricks. And to be clear, the Tower of Babel was not built for people to go up to God or up to the gods in the heavens. I think that's a mistake we make when we think about this story. But that's not true. Rather, it is to bring the gods down for their own benefits. What does the narrative say? It says to make a name for themselves so that they would be famous throughout the world, not God. So it is to bless their civilization and the meaning making that they were doing, of course, not in alignment with what God wills. So you could put it this way. It was their way of saying, God bless Babylon instead of Babylon bless God. So in Genesis 11, people gathered to form a city against God's command to fill the earth and they build a tower. Instead of building for the glory of God, they build it for themselves. The Bible says they built it again to make a name for themselves and to show off their own power to show off their pride and their technological ingenuity and prowess. Look at us. Look what we can do. We are no longer in need of the creator to tell us what to do. It was a way of saying, look at us. We have no need of the creator telling us how to run the world. You stay up there, we'll stay down here and we'll run the business of earth. But folks, you cannot bring order this way. Oh, you might build a city or you might build a civilization for a time, but it will eventually crumble and the towers will eventually fall. Because it's only through the wisdom of God with his designs, his plans, and his purposes that humanity can flourish, amen? And that's just what we see. 
So God intervenes, Babylon falls, the people scatter into nations, and from this scattering, God will in time form a nation from Abram, beginning in Genesis 12. We know him as Abraham. And one day that nation will build a city apart for God known as Jerusalem. Uh, Clearly, a view of the city changes throughout the biblical story. Let's look at that together. Let's think about the city from an Old Testament perspective. What was the city? It was about density more than population size. So they didn't differentiate between a city, a town, a borough, a village, a township. It's just craziness, okay? I don't know why we do that. But anyways, somebody start to clap at that? That's interesting. So it's about density. It's about people living in close proximity to each other. That's what they, and how they thought of a city. And you would have different sizes of those cities. Ancient cities offered safety from enemies. Now go back to ancient times. The walls, the reason they built walls is so that at night people could come in the city, they could shut the city doors and the gates and keep bad people out, right? So it offered safety, stability, community, diversity, productivity, conveniences, and a place of creativity. They were also centers of commerce, of culture, and political and legal order. Our cities were also seen as places of sin and idolatry, crime, corruption, and so forth. Just think about some of the renowned cities or infamous cities in the Old Testament. Ur, which which God called Abram to leave that city so God could create a nation out of him. Sodom and Gomorrah, Babylon, Nineveh. So through a good bit of the Old Testament, cities are places of crime and corruption and sin and disobedience. But Israel's view, though, becomes more positive after they enter the promised land in Canaan, where we have the cities of refuge, where people could could flee to for safety, or, or Jerusalem, which becomes the city for God. Jerusalem, though, eventually falls, as we all know, uh, there with the Babylonian exile, as well as later in 70 uh, AD, when the Romans destroy the temple and sack Jerusalem. So it's important, though, though, to ask this. Why did this city of God, a city meant to be fully devoted to God, right? The opposite of Babylon. Why did it not work? And the answer is because God's people became like the world in its desire for a king. It's interesting if you ever notice how God will accommodate himself to us. Like it was never his idea. But a good chunk of the Old Testament is about this idea of Israel trying to live into the, the, king, the king concept. But it wasn't what he wanted. Yet he went with it. And he used it. As he often does. Use our poor choices to bring about his will. To tell his story of redemption. Thank God for that. Because if God didn't do that, we'd all be, we'd all be lost. And so the answer is because God's people became like the world. They, they, they embraced idolatry in all kinds of forms, misplaced passions, its violence, its trust in military might, and all its injustice and oppression of the poor and its refusal to listen to the prophets that God sent to repent of their sins, to change their course or else. And they didn't. And the or else came. 
That's why it didn't work. And because of this, Jerusalem is destroyed and many of her inhabitants are taken into Babylonian exile. First, Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and then Babylon comes and takes Judah and takes their brightest and their best into exile to live into Babylon to become a part of their culture. Again, we're going to see some of this next week in the book of Daniel. And then listen to what the prophet Jeremiah writes to those who now find themselves, think about this, put yourself in their shoes, now living as exiles and strangers in a foreign land. He writes this letter to the exiles in the city of Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. So Jeremiah has been left behind. He's not been chosen among the youngest, the best, and the brightest. He's an old prophet. He stays behind and he sends this letter to the exiles, the foreigners, the strangers who are now living in Babylon. And he says this, build houses and settle down. Don't keep your bags packed, ready to leave. Rather, unpack your bags and become a part of Babylon. That's a huge shift, folks from the way the Bible had seen the city and its occupiers of God's people before. Build houses, houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. So live off the land. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage. They may too have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Right, settle in. This is your new home. You're now in the world of Babylon, though you're not of it. <laughs> Verse 7. Also, Jeremiah says, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. The word here in Hebrew is shalom. Now, this isn't just peace as in like no violence. This is a, a holistic sort of health and wholeness sort of peace. Seek the wholeness and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Seek its common good, in other words. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now notice, your attitude and your posture, Jeremiah would say to them, should not be hostile to these Babylonians, to these people of the world. No, you're there to be a blessing, to seek the common good, not to rebel. I think of this when Paul writes Romans 13. (laughs) Not to rebel against the powers, not to, also not to do the bare minimum. You've heard of quiet quitting these days, right? Not to do the bare minimum. Again, we vacillate between the extremes, don't we? We just live to work. We can never shut it off. We never Sabbath. And then it's like, we're just going to do the bare minimum and just get by. Folks, that's not the answer either. It's not what it means to be culture makers, to be artists and gardeners in the way of the Lord, to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, to treat others the way that we want to be treated, to seek to benefit society. That's not going to get it done either. So this is our posture, not to condemn, not to critique, not to copy culture, nor is it just to blend in and consume. You're to enter it, affirm what you can become fluent in the culture of Babylon and yet be set apart to create culture. Are you with me? Are you connecting the dots?
and his exiles seeking the peace, the shalom, and the prosperity of the city. When we do this, when we live this way, think about it, as evidently exiles, foreigners, strangers, the minority in a society, when we live this way without benefits and privileges, we will gain the attention of the community as next week we'll see Daniel and his friends did. And they were given places of power and influence and yet they remain humble, yet they remain committed to God, as we'll see. So the city will take notice, folks. Most assuredly, they will take notice, and for the right reasons, for the right reasons. Not because of our megaphone Christianity, not because of our picketing and our signs and getting in people's face, not by being belligerent, not by fighting the culture wars like all those four C's, not by doing those things, but by being the faithful presence of God in the land. And so this then becomes the posture, you see, and the perspective of the people of God moving forward through exile, through post-exilic period in the intertestamental period, and into the New Testament. We see this. These folks who lived and wrote at the height of the Roman Empire, another occupying power in a pluralistic society. You just think about the Roman pantheon. You ever been there? I've, I've, I've been there years ago, went there. It's very funny. Today, there's a McDonald's like 50 yards from the Roman pantheon. Now, there's a sermon in that if you think about it. But, but how Rome housed all of the gods because they were so tolerant. They were such a pluralistic culture. And they said, we welcome all except this Christ whom we crucified. And through God's redemptive story in Jesus, though, it becomes clear to the church that we have always been exiles on the earth and we will be until God in his power and his power alone establishes his perfect city. Not something that we can do on our own. Listen to what the author of Hebrews writes. Hebrews chapter 11. Now this is the chapter of what we call the hall of faith, right? The author of Hebrews, whoever he or she is, is recalling all of the people who lived in faithfulness to God through the Old Testament, through the Hebrew Scriptures. He says all these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all these folks, Rahab even, right? They're still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They, 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 they admitted that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. We have not arrived yet, nor will we, unless God does something, you see. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Folks, let's get this right. We're not escaping the world to encounter this city. This city is coming to us. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I can't help but think about what John wrote in Revelation 21, verse 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, out of God's space, out of God's dimension, becoming one with earth, right? Coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I can just picture a bride coming down the aisle. Everybody stands and looks and watches as this consummation of heaven and earth takes place. This city is not one we're flying away to up in the clouds where we take literally all of those things there that are described there with the streets of gold and the city that reaches up into the stratosphere, right? (laughs) That's how tall it actually describes. Don't miss the point of this figurative language. Don't miss the point of what John is trying to tell us in this revelation, right? God affirms the city and he affirms our desire to organize ourselves for the common good. And he intends for us to order society in a way that allows for human flourishing. But we must recognize our Lord and temper our expectations as to what level of justice can be accomplished in this world and by what means we've been allowed to pursue it. Now think about this because this just flies in the face of both folks on the far right and the far left. We lose my slides. It's okay, they'll come back. We enter culture and seek the glory for God, but listen folks, not at any and all costs. Not by violence, not by coercion and force. Why? Because Jesus did not afford us that. Jesus is about not retributive justice, but restorative justice. And we work within those bounds, recognizing that it is God who finally brings the full consummation of the kingdom. We enter culture and seek glory for God, but not at any and all costs. We said we are free to create culture, shape society through the many avenues available to us. Now listen to this though. In so far as we can obey our king and operate according to his values and the vision of the kingdom. Let me say that again. You are free as a Christian to work in many avenues and places of positions of influence in the world. But where are the boundaries set? The boundaries are set insofar that you can obey Jesus there. Insofar that you can follow his teachings and his commands, that you can operate according to the values and the vision of the kingdom, then you are free. You are free to create culture. You are free to bring about justice. You're free to make your life a living signpost that says this is where God is taking the world. This is what God is going to do with all of creation. And we're getting glimpses of it here. Right, we're seeing seeing evidence of that break in and break through. But it is Jesus and Jesus alone that will bring the full consummation of the kingdom. It is Jesus that makes it possible for us to finally see what John saw in that revelation, a holy city coming down to earth from God. Are you with me? The Apostle Paul writes this, just to further this point. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. Learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, 
that there are many whose conduct shows that they're really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite, just whatever feels good. They're just driven by those emotions. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life here on on earth. Now listen to that. Paul is describing the mindset, the motivations of those who would build towers unto themselves, so to speak, for their own benefit. And we see a lot of that tower building going on today. And then in verse 20, he says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we're eagerly awaiting for him to return as our savior. Now, Paul is playing on on a metaphor here because what would happen is when kings or Caesars went off to war to conquer some new territory, when they returned to the city, or let's just say they, they, they went on a, a trip, right, overseas to meet with some ambassador, and they return, the people in this city leave the city, they go out and meet the leader, the Caesar, the king, outside the city, and then parade him back into the city. This is the idea Paul means in 1 Thessalonians 4, that we go up to the air in the clouds, symbols of divinity, to meet the Lord there. Then what? Then we return. This is the metaphor. This is the imperial metaphor that's being described here. So, so it's not a place we're flying away to. And when we say that our allegiance and our citizenship is in heaven, is that we take our orders, our marching orders from there. And when we envision Jesus in heaven, he is reigning and ruling from there. This is the control room of earth. So get this picture. Paul says he will take our weak mortal bodies, change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. In other words, we looked at the resurrected body of Jesus. We see what's happened to Jesus. And it is the prototype. It is the foretaste. It is the, he is the firstborn among the dead that says this is where all of creation is going. This is what will happen to all those who believe. This is, this is what the earth and, and all of the created order is going to go through, a resurrection and come out being what God wants it to be. In other words, it is God who makes it happen. The power of the Spirit. Ultimately by His power and His action that all things will be reconciled unto God. And why is it so important to remember that? It it doesn't cause us to slack off on justice doing and culture making. To remember this. What it does is it keeps us anchored to Jesus. Right? that we're not going about trying to bring about good in the world, not realizing that we've actually crossed over. We've left Jesus. We've become untethered from Jesus because we think that it comes by any and all means, and it does not. It doesn't come by evangelicals making fools of themselves. It doesn't come by evangelicals fighting fire with fire, bowing up to the world condemning it or withdrawing from it or copying it or critiquing it but rather by settling in by entering and affirming what we can by becoming fluent with it so that we can confront its idols and darkness from a position of humility and of love 
where we've earned the right to speak by the way in which we live. Hallelujah. This is what we're called to for the good of the city. And think about this. We, when we live with this understanding that our engagement with the world and our culture making in the present evil age is to serve as a signpost of things to come, to bring more of the kingdom to earth by the power of the Spirit, casting a vision of the way things could be and one day will be. And as Peter said, we actually can speed its coming. This is why we do it. Not just to be signposts, but we speed the coming of Christ and the kingdom by our good deeds. And that's what we were created for as a holy witness for the kingdom. So in the meantime, we remember these words of Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 13 through 16 in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount after giving us the Beatitudes and how we are to live as the people of God. He said, you are the salt of the earth But what good is salt if it loses its flavor? We're a preservative. We're for the taste of the world. We are of value. At one point, Roman soldiers were paid in salt. We are of infinite worth to God. We are the preservative in the world. We are to be salt, Jesus said. And then he mixes his metaphors. We're also light. We're light of the world. We're like a city on a hilltop you can't miss, right? Because the light shines from it. You can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp, puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where everybody can see the light that it gives off. In the same way, Jesus said, let your good deeds shine out like that for all to see so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. What are we saying? Brothers and sisters, we are being invited by Jesus to live into God's good purposes for our lives, to be his image bearers and culture makers, not to build towers for ourselves, but to point others to the God who looks like Jesus, to be salt and light in the world through our good works at home, on the job, in our community, where we've been given places of influence. We're called to be artists and architects, doctors and lawyers, teachers and administrators, farmers and first responders, day laborers and construction workers, inventors and entertainers, astronomers and accountants, scholars and scribes, musicians and technicians, counselors and consultants and caretakers and cultivators and healers and revealers and mothers and fathers and politicians and poets, pastors and prophets. All for the glory of God. We do this as exiles. We do this as peacemakers. We do this as priests of the one true God and it's all for his glory and for the good of the city. This is our invitation. This is our calling. And finally, here's some questions to help us reflect and respond to the Holy Spirit and I trust that the Spirit is speaking to your heart helping to put things into perspective, clearing away the cobwebs and the, and the fog of the world that has kept us from seeing the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Number one, a question for reflection and response. How do you see our culture building towers to ourselves? Because we know how that one ends. And maybe make, make this personal. How might you be building towers to yourself instead of living for the glory of God. Oh, that job might make you a lot of money, but it may not be what God wants you to do for the glory of God and the good of the city.
Number two, what are the main centers of culture and places of influence where we live in the greater Harrisburg area? And I hope that if you're part of small group, you'll, you'll talk about this one a bit more as we think through this. Where are the, the, the hubs of culture making? Don't you know God's called you to be present there? And we all have a different path to walk and a different calling. It's up to us together to discern it. Amen. And then lastly, number three, are you using your culture-making power to glorify God, to bring more of heaven to earth where you live and work, being a living signpost of the things to come. To be made in God's image, N.T. Wright says, means that we're like angled mirrors, reflecting God's glory into the world and then glory back to himself. If we live for the glory of God, we do not waste our lives, nor the opportunities to be what Christ has called us to be in our time of exile, as aliens and strangers who work for the good of the city. Let's do that, church. Father, we so thank you, Lord, for this word that you've given us, reminding us of who you are, what you desire for the world, your goodwill, your loving intent, your invitations to repent, to change, to trade in our towers for a building not made with human hands. Help us to commit to you, Jesus. Help us to commit to your vision of the church, the people of God, as salt, light, and culture makers. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.